This is Nashville. I'm senior producer Steve Harouche, sitting in for our host, Khalil Ecolona. Do you ever turn a corner in Nashville and just feel disoriented by a new building you don't recognize, or maybe the wreckage of a freshly demolished house? I know I do. This city is changing right in front of our eyes, and it feels like we're losing pieces of our history far faster than we can even document it. One of the first challenges we got when we were gearing up to launch this daily show, WPLN's first, was to set and keep a record for our city. We've been working to do that ever since in many ways. And that's how we came up with this idea to drop a pin at various locations across our city and region. Maybe it's a vacant lot, a new chain store, some abandoned building. The thing is, you wouldn't know it by looking, but often these unassuming locations hold a lot of history, the kind of local history that isn't well kept. This hour, we're going to be looking back at some of the places where This Is Nashville dropped a pin in 2022. Last year, for This Is Nashville, we went back in time to the heyday of a legendary nightclub. This was the mecca of our black community. Visited Nashville's first post-emancipation black neighborhood. This church was the last thing on the hill. Walked a section of the Trail of Tears that runs right through downtown. So when the Cherokee came through here, they would have seen the courthouse over here to our right. Celebrated the renewal of a rural African-American community that nearly disappeared. When I put my feet down here, I know this is my roots. Got lost in the woods, looking for an endangered plant. There it is, look at that, we walked past it twice, that's it. And rode a pontoon saloon to an island on the Cumberland River. Yeah, this is Hills Island right here. That holds as many questions as answers. And each time we dropped a pin, we got to see this place we call home a little differently, a little more deeply. We got to pause and think about what has happened here and the stories that are still with us. If we could just slow down and look for them. The thing about slowing down to find these places is that sometimes there's no indication they were ever there. When we decided to do an episode for This is Nashville on the cultural legacy of North Nashville, my mind went straight to this club, The New Era. It's a place I only knew about from stories and album credits. So I went searching. That search led me to a busy stretch of Charlotte Avenue between 11th and 12th. It's really not much to look at now. But back in the day, this area was jumping every night of the week. So let's go back in time, all the way back to the fall of 1963, as the inimitable Etta James, just 25 years old, takes the stage at the legendary venue known as the New Era Club. Edda James Rocks the House is probably the most enduring musical artifact of the New Era Club. It was recorded live over two September nights that year in 1963, and the atmosphere is absolutely electric. It feels like you're right there with James in a sparkling white dress wailing away on the small wooden stage. 
That didn't keep the city from demolishing the New Era Club to make way for I-40 less than a decade later. The club did relocate to 12th and Charlotte, where it was later renamed the Modern Era. That's where I'm standing now. It's a very busy area, and the New Era was like the center of that. That's Nashville native Ron Wynn. And that's one of the reasons why Chess decided to record Eddie James there in 63 was because the New Era had such a national reputation. Ron always knew about the New Era Club, but it wasn't until about 20 years ago that he really dug into its legacy. Uh, One of the things that I guess people who weren't around in that time don't really understand is that Nashville was a hub for black music activity. The New Era first opened in 1939, and this whole area became a regular stop for touring acts which isn't to mention the local talent gigging nearly every night. As the traffic zips past us, Ron and I look around for any indication that the New Era Club was ever here. There's nothing. There are some sprinkler outlets. There's a little drain pipe. There's what looks like to be sort of a utility door. Um, And there's really just the side of a building. Uh, There's no marker here. And down where the, uh, the previous location was uh, is a parking lot that abuts the highway. This is kind of typical of many cities in terms of the neglect of the history that's in their backyard. They kind of just take it for granted. But not everyone takes that history for granted. My name is Lorenzo Washington, founder of the Jefferson Street Sound Museum. Lorenzo was a regular at the New Era back in its heyday. The New Era Club was packed every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. It was so much fun being in that building. There were beer taverns and boarding houses nearby, and a popular restaurant known for serving up heaping plates of food. Actually, that place was owned by guitarist Johnny Jones, who helped Jimi Hendrix refine his technique. This was the mecca of of our black community. Uh, Charlotte, uh, uh, Buckhannon, uh, Jefferson Street, you know. Uh, uh, We as black folk over here at that time was pretty much self-contained because we couldn't go to the white hotels and the white establishments. And at the heart of the Mecca was the New Era Club. It wasn't a big room. Lorenzo says it held about 150 people. But it was so much excitement in that club, and so many great artists and musicians. Of course, uh, Etta James played in that club. Speaking of Etta James Rocks the House. Well, I wasn't there that night, but uh, one of my good friends, uh, James Watson, he played bass uh, on that album, and he didn't know that they were actually making an album, from what he tells me. He just thought he was there jamming with Etta James. And he said, now, uh, this is what he said, they didn't get paid for it either (laughs) because they didn't sign contracts uh, saying that they were recording an album. I've not been able to confirm this story with James Watson, who is still alive, but it wouldn't be the first time a musician didn't get paid for their work. One regular performer at the New Era was Jackie Shane. She was a singer with a powerful voice and commanding stage presence. She was also openly trans in the Jim Crow South. Tell her that I'm happy. Tell her that I'm gay. Tell her I'm happy. 
and she was afraid to death that she was going to be uh, hurt or killed here in Nashville. And she would open up for Jimi Hendrix. And she has told me a number of times that uh, Jimi loved her playing because uh, Jackie played the drums and she could play drums standing up and sing at the same time. Today, Jackie Shane is gone, and there's nothing left of the New Era Club. Well, almost nothing. When they were tearing that building down, I saw the bulldozers uh, knocking it down, and I uh, drove up and uh, went in there and asked the guy, could I take some bricks, a piece of the mirror, piece of the floor, uh, just to have it. I've got the pieces right over here in the case. Oh, those are the pieces? Those are the pieces. All right. Those um, are the bricks from the actual New Era Club. It's just one of the many memories that Lorenzo was working to keep alive. This is Nashville, and that could only be Etta James. Speaking of going and looking for things I'd only ever heard about, one adventure last year took me deep into the woods out in Rutherford County with MTSU plant scientist Ethan Swigert. For reasons that will become clear, I can't tell you exactly where we dropped this pin, but I can tell you what we were looking for. Wild ginseng. There's kind of a, a legend about ginseng that it, it shows itself to you. And if, if you're not ready, you won't find it. And so we had known about this patch and we went and, and found it. And then one of our colleagues wanted to see it and he spent about three hours, got lost back in here and never found it. <laughs> so the joke was like, well, you weren't ready. For what it's worth, I feel ready. As we get deeper into the woods, Ethan points out the trees along the way, mostly pine and other evergreens. The ground is rocky, so Ethan says we're not likely to find ginseng here. But then something catches his eye, and it definitely looks like ginseng, at least to me. False alarm. Now this is Virginia creeper here. It's a native vine. And people always will say, oh man, I've got like five acres of ginseng, and I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> five acres of ginseng, you're sitting on like a million dollars. No way. Virginia creeper is not worth anything, but if you've got wild ginseng on your property, now that's a different story. Yeah, um, watch your ankles. There are boulders everywhere, but soon the landscape begins to change. Less rocky, more maple trees. Signs that we're getting closer. And we're looking for a northeast-facing hillside. The way to, to find that is wake up in the morning and maybe around 9.30 or 10, look at where the sun hits, and that's a good spot to go and find ginseng. You want kind of a gently sloping, which as you can see is what we got here, and that'll help with drainage. They like to be well watered, but not soggy and not too dry. They're pretty persnickety, really. I like it just right. By now, we've been out for an hour. 
which is about twice as long as Ethan thought it might take. And even though it's hot and muggy, honestly, the hike is pretty enjoyable. Yeah, talking to those old ginsengers, or sangers, going out singing, uh, a lot of what they talk about is um, just the moments of spending time with like their grandfather or dad or whatever and hiking in the woods, crawling underbrush and stuff, just having fun. But we came here to find ginseng, and it is not going well. Man, I just feel like it's right here and I'm not seeing it. This goes on for a while. Let me check my GPS. I'm in these little pockets like this. It's good to kind of slow down a little bit and look for it. Nope, close. But that kind of shape is what you're looking for. So much Virginia creeper, it gets my hopes up. I think it is left here. Or actually, maybe right. Let's keep going that way. If I remember right, this patch will be on this side. Nope. Tricked me. But all this time on the trail is giving Ethan plenty of time to school me on ginseng. It's been cultivated for thousands of years for its medicinal benefits. Native Americans use the root to treat everything from headaches to infertility. High blood pressure? Take wild ginseng. Low blood pressure? Take wild ginseng. It's sometimes called a miracle plant, and that's because really it can be whatever you need it to be. Almost, almost like a cigarette. You might smoke it if you need it to get amped up. You might smoke it if you need to calm down, kind of get the same effect. Right. Or a different effect depending on what you want. Ginseng's kind of like that. It's easy to see why it's so valuable. Ethan says the gnarlier the root, the better. Though it's nearly impossible to know how gnarly the root is from above ground. And in case you haven't put this together yet, it's nearly impossible to see, period. Even if you know what you're looking for. Which, thankfully, Ethan does. There, God, right there. There it is. Look at that. We walked past it twice. That's it. That's ginseng. That's four prong. That's a huge one. Good grief. Walked right past it. Ha! <laughs> Told you, right? Like, if it doesn't want to be seen, it won't. We slowed down. We, we chilled out, and then boom. There it is. I almost stepped on it. But so you can see these, these are the prongs and these are, this whole thing is the leaf and that's a leaflet. And then there it's, it's flowering. Man, I was getting worried. I was like, if I don't show him this, this dang plant, he's going to think I'm a joke. The ginseng is no joke. It's a beautiful plant and it was hiding in plain sight. It's also an endangered plant. So after all this, we leave it right where we found it, and head back. Thanks for tuning in for this special episode of This is Nashville. We're looking back at some of the pins we dropped in 2022 on places in our town that you might not notice at first glance, but have a lot of stories to tell us about this place we call home. After the break, we'll see what a few easy-to-miss places on the Cumberland River can tell us about two of our nation's darkest chapters and Nashville's role in them. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. I'm Steve Harouche, and this is Nashville. For this special episode, we're retracing our steps and looking back at some of the places where This is Nashville dropped a pin in 2022. 
Maybe it's a parking lot, an ordinary looking stretch of road, the side of an office building. You wouldn't necessarily know it by looking, but these easily overlooked locations can hold a lot of history. Now, let's turn toward two spots right on the Cumberland River that remind us Nashville's history is not only layered, but at times oppressive and violent. In October, I went down to Gay Street in downtown Nashville, a spot on the riverbank beside the Victory Memorial Bridge. Nearly 200 years ago, about a thousand Cherokee people came here, almost all of them on foot, and crossed over the Cumberland River. Like other Native American people who had been forced from their homes and ancestral lands, the Cherokee were on their way to Indian Territory in present-day Oklahoma. It was a difficult migration, and for about a quarter of the people who walked what became known as the Trail of Tears, it was fatal. The bridge they used is gone, but today you can still see one part of the original structure, if you can find it. To reach the bridge, the Cherokee walked up 2nd Avenue, right through what is now the heart of Nashville's tourist district. It's early in the afternoon, but there are people everywhere, and every few minutes, a transportainment vehicle rumbles slowly by. At the corner of Second and Commerce, I meet up with Toy Heap. He's vice president of the Native History Association, and he's been researching the Trail of Tears for a long time. He tells me there's a newspaper account that indicates on this day, October 15th, the first group of Cherokee came through Nashville on the Trail of Tears. As our paper was going to press, it was printed on the 16th. Uh, uh, a detachment of Cherokee passed, passed through our town. He unrolls a map that shows how the streets were configured back in 1838. So they came in um, on uh, Murfreesboro Road and runs into Lafayette Street. And from that point, they could have gone up First Avenue, but at that time, that was called Water Street. But that was where the wharf was, where they unloaded the steamboats, and it was incredibly busy. Back then, 2nd Avenue was called Market Street, and it would have made a lot more sense to go this way and avoid the traffic jam at the wharf. This way was also less steep. The detachments were, the average, like 1,000 people. Um, there were 11 that uh, came the overland route or the northern route and actually passed through Nashville. So what the citizens of Nashville would have seen at the time was a line of people, like a thousand miles, a thousand people long, probably in single file or two abreast to avoid blocking the road. And even though they had supply wagons, almost all of them walked. So they were, they were on foot almost the, the whole way. So standing here 184 years ago, that's what you would have seen. Toy says they would have been dressed, well, a lot like the people in Nashville. So maybe, despite their numbers, they just kind of blended in. It's, it's, it's kind of odd because the newspapers before, from early 1838, when they were doing the roundup and everything, they have a lot of news about the have a lot of news about the roundup, 
But then when they actually start coming through, there's only a few articles that actually say the Cherokee were passing through here at the time. And basically that's all they say. One of the newspapers had apparently voiced some concern in one of their articles about the condition of the Cherokee. Some of them had problems getting supplies. It's a little jarring walking this path today with the backdrop of music blasting from party buses and bars. We continue walking north up 2nd Avenue, surrounded by construction barricades, until we reach the public square. Yeah, the square was basically in the same place, but it was laid out different. So when the Cherokee came through here, they would have seen the, the, the courthouse over here to our right, and the market house uh, would be to the left. There were also a couple of hotels back then. Today, there's a man playing catch with his dog on a patch of grass as we walk over the same land that the Cherokee crossed over on their way to the Nashville Toll Bridge. At the time, it was the only way to cross the Cumberland without taking a ferry, which for a group of this size just wouldn't have been practical. And the bridge is probably one of the main reasons the Cherokee came through Nashville. It was a covered bridge with two lanes of traffic and a pedestrian walkway on each side. We head east across the square and down a set of stairs to Gay Street. And down here, there are two interpretive plaques which Toy worked on getting installed. One is dedicated to the history of the bridge itself. The guy that designed it, his name was Lewis Wernwag, he was a big deal in um, 19th century engineering. He had, he's a very significant figure. So when we were communicating to the National Park Service, you know, telling them, so you know, this is a Lewis Wernwag bridge, they were like, wow. That really, you know, that, that, that really turned them on. They were, you know, really excited about that because he's a big deal. The other plaque is dedicated to the removal of the Cherokee and the Trail of Tears. Looking up from the plaque, all we can really see is a chain-link fence and a lot of brush and weeds. We actually have to walk about 20 feet to the left before we can look back behind where the plaques are. And then we see it. So we're looking at a, the corner of a bridge abutment. It's uh, built out of cut uh, stone that's uh, stacked. Um, the abutment, it's, uh, it's like a rectangular structure. And we're looking at the northern uh, corner of it. Um, from where we're standing, um, we can't even see the base of it because it's, it's, it's so big. When you when you're uh, down on the riverbank looking up at it, that's when it really makes its impact on how, how massive it was. Standing here, I try to imagine what it would have been like to leave your home behind, walking hundreds of miles on foot toward an uncertain future in a place you'd never seen. And I have to admit, it's kind of overwhelming. I asked Toy how he's feeling. Well, it's, you know, I. I try to stay focused on the historical aspect of it. Um, it is, it's a disturbing episode in, in our history. Uh, it's something that, uh, that never should have happened. Uh, and, you know, it's really easy to get lost in that. He also says we should remember that while this is a story of loss, it's also a story of a people overcoming tremendous hardship. The Cherokee culture is still alive today, despite everything it's endured. 
Choi hopes that more signage and plaques will make the Trail of Tears more visible here in Nashville. You see all those people on Second Avenue, and you know there would be a certain percentage of them, I think, that would be interested in knowing that this is down here. So if we had stuff out there that you know, direct them here, then that would be a good thing. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm senior producer Steve Harouche. This hour is a special episode rounding up some of the pins we dropped in 2022 on storied but otherwise unassuming places like the side of an office building on Charlotte or an uncharted island in the Cumberland. Hills Island, up near Old Hickory, has a story to tell about what historian Dr. LaRotha Williams describes as Nashville's first and most lucrative business, the buying and selling of black men, women, and children. In October, This Is Nashville executive producer Andrea Tudhope sailed out to the island with local historians, archaeologists, and the folks from the Cumberland River Compact who were gifted the land in 2021. We kick off at the East Bank Landing Dock. This is no ordinary ride for this pontoon, which normally hosts parties up and down the Cumberland. Are we going to be your most sober um, <laughs> guests on this we've, boat? We've, we've done it all. But today's ride is quiet, contemplative. In about an hour and a half, we spot the island in the distance. Yeah, this is Hills Island right here. That's Catherine Price with the Cumberland River Compact. The island seems small at first glance, but it stretches nearly 20 acres. We idle quietly along the west side of the island to find a good place to dock. It's shallow here, only about seven feet deep, and there's just about 30 feet separating the island from the mainland. After the compact was gifted the land, they started to reimagine how it might be used. You know, we wanted to make sure that we didn't just focus on sort of the ecological role of this island, um, but also really understanding kind of the culture and history of, of this island. And that history is complicated and nearly as uncharted as the island itself. But what we do know is that this island played an important role in a grave reputation that modern Nashville came to hold. It's history that TSU professor Dr. LaRotha Williams is determined to better understand, starting with how it came to be named after a man named Harry Hill. Truth be told, I still don't know. But Hill was one of the wealthiest businessmen in this city and later on in New Orleans. And when I say business, always bear in mind slavery was Nashville's first big business. Early Davidson County tax records show that Hill was one of Nashville's largest property owners. And at the time of his death in 1853, he enslaved more than 1,000 African-American men and women. But Hill didn't own the island. John Donaldson did. Donaldson, of course, staked a claim and settled what became modern Nashville, displacing countless Native Americans who had long called this place and presumably this island home. Donaldson's Nashville, our Nashville, was built on the backs of enslaved people. Nashville was a a place 
that became known initially because of its position as the second largest slave port in the state. But a lot of the slave people came through here trying to get free. This island very well could have been a space where they hid out on their way to Kentucky or Illinois. I wish that we had a better record of what the space would have been like. As it is, really the only written record we do have of this island is the diary of Emily Donaldson, John Donaldson's granddaughter. So there's a lot still to uncover. What Dr. Williams is most interested in is what life was truly like for the people these men bought, sold, and forced into labor. There's one man in particular who's caught his attention. His name was George. Like most of the African-Americans who were enslaved, what we know about him usually comes from observations of the enslavers. And what we know about George comes from Emily Donaldson's diary. A lot of the language she used to describe him we should take with a grain of salt. We know he had a family, but it seems they stayed on the Donaldson plantation just across the river on the mainland while George spent summers on Hills Island. They talk about him coming back to the plantation after the summer ends, and he's having skins and nuts and things that he's collected from out here. Emily wrote that George had shaved teeth. Now, body modification was common where he was likely from in West Africa, but Dr. Williams says this very well could have been to keep his enslavers in fear a form of psychological resistance. You can't physically do anything to better your situation, but you can use your mind maybe to pull one over on your enslavers to make make your life a little bit better. Whether George was banished to the island or not, we don't know. But either way, Dr. Williams imagines living on Hills Island gave George a fair amount of autonomy. And now you think about it, when you read that diary, it talks about him walking around, singing songs, maybe or speaking a foreign language. Being out here might have very well insulated him from the pressures of, of, of conforming to what Donaldson and others would have wanted him to become. The island today is untouched. The only trails we find are game trails. We walk south, then make our way to the other side. It's really not too far across, but far enough that it's easy to imagine George living a quiet life here. When we reach the east shore, Dr. Williams stops to look around. As I was walking on this island, I was trying to figure out, well, what would I do if I was here? I like to fish, but ultimately you reach a point where you just get tired of fishing. So maybe building something or engaging in some sort of art. Hasn't been lost on me that I've probably one of the few black men that have actually been to this island over the last 150 some odd years. My part in this narrative is to try to learn more about them, to maybe reveal a little bit more about Nashville's black past and 
by extension, the city's history as well, because you can't separate their presence here from slavery in this city, from the development of Nashville during the territorial period. And I don't know how this thing is going to turn out. I don't know what this place is going to become, but I'm grateful that at least in this telling of the story, African-American presence won't be left out of it like it has been in the past. You're listening to This is Nashville. Thank you for hanging with us this special hour, looking back at the pins we dropped around Nashville and Middle Tennessee, and the history we uncovered in the process. After the break, we'll check out a few buildings that helped anchor two African-American communities after emancipation, one that vanished and one that narrowly escaped that fate. Stay with us. This is Nashville. I'm Steve Harouche, and this is Nashville. When we were gearing up to launch WPLN's first daily show, one of the challenges we got was to help set and keep a record for our city. One of the ways we've been working to do this is by dropping a pin at various locations across our city and region to stop and really dig into the history there. The kind of history that isn't always marked or well-documented. In the years after the Civil War, African-Americans put down roots and built communities across the South. That was true here in Middle Tennessee, and one natural place for community to form was around Fort Negley, which was the subject of one of our best episodes in 2022. Fort Negley was a centerpiece for the Union Army in Nashville, and many of the formerly enslaved people who built it and fought to defend it, ended up settling in the area, which later came to be known as the Bass Street neighborhood. It was Nashville's first post-emancipation black neighborhood. Now today, Bass Street is barely a street at all. It's a stretch of just a thousand feet or so, but it wasn't always that way. Back in October, 2021, This Is Nashville host Khalil Ecolona met up with a small group of conservationists, historians, and archeologists at the foot of St. Cloud Hill. That's where the Bass Street Baptist Church stood back in the early 1900s. Also in attendance that day were former residents of the neighborhood, like Philip Minter. Growing up, I lived right across the street right there where that pole is. I grew up right there at 614 Bass Street. My grandparents lived up here. We had a double outhouse that everyone in this, on this side of the street had to use that, that bathroom, so. Yeah, about that. The city didn't run plumbing or electricity to this area, but that didn't stop them from having fun and being, you know, kids. I played all back up and through there. That was my, how you see it, my stomping ground. So that's where I played at, and this right here was where, where the church was at. He's talking about the original location of the Bass Street Church. Philip says the church was the community. His grandfather was a deacon there. Vernus Scruggs remembers him well. He never missed the service. Now, Philip's grandpa, the deacon, was a double amputee who used a wheelchair, which sounds like it may have been a challenge given the church sat at the base of one very steep hill. But Vernus says it was no problem. His grandfather, with no legs, 
would roll down this hill wow. with his wheelchair to the foot of the steps, sit on the steps, scoot himself up the steps with a wheelchair and went on. Until he got to the top and go and go and, and then he'd get back in the wheelchair. Vernus attended these services nearly every Sunday. When the church was first built, this was it was just a dugout here. When and the dugout, they put a basement. We had service in the basement for years, up up until around the early 40s. That's when the upper part of the church was finally finished. This church was the last thing on the hill beside the fort. The fort started there and went on over. A lot has changed since then. The church was torn down, though it kept its name through several relocations. But back when it was here, on Bass Street, Vernus remembers exploring the area as a kid every Sunday. It was really only because of the conversations they had at home that Vernus knew anything about Fort Nagley and its significance at all. We couldn't wait for Sunday school to be out on Sunday morning and a whole bunch of kids just run up, run up and explore the fort. And everything was on the fort at that time. Even, even, even some, some old cannons and, 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 and old mini balls, all, kind, all kinds of war stuff was still stored all over the place. And little by little, they, they kind of cleaned it up and took it over to the museum. They never really talked about the Battle of Nashville a lot in school. They, I mean, they mentioned it, it was a battle national, but nobody ever talked about any details. And nobody, uh, until uh, when school was gone on, they never even mentioned that, that it was actually the, the black soldiers that built this fort and actually defended it. This kind of erasure took shape in more ways than one. Part of the reason the Bass Street Church had to move is because of the installment of I-40. Urban renewal split the thriving Bass Street neighborhood right in half. They cut all these houses out and brought the interstate through here. So, and that's when they made all us move to the housing projects. Did you all try to fight it at all? We couldn't fight it. It wasn't no fight. It wasn't no fight. We had to move. They told us it was that's how it was going to be, and the interstate had to come through here, and we had to move. And that was just the bottom line. But like I was telling them. Our house could have still been right there, right today. I'm just sitting back looking, you know, our house could have still been right there. Too many times history is just wiped out for the sake of advancement or tomorrow, and we throw away yesterday. And so thank you so much for holding on to it. It's why we're here today. Reverend Darrell Thompson is just one of many gathered in an effort to set the record of this place, to keep its history alive, in part, with a naming ceremony led by Janine Blackman of the African-American Cultural Alliance. We do a little ceremony where we invite the ancestors here. And um, we're going to, as it is, amen, we say ashe after we call a name. And it's just a way to acknowledge their presence. And the first time I came here, I actually felt, I still feel them. And I feel like that land is being healed for Negley as well as this land, because so much has happened here that was unpleasant, but I feel like the land has actually been healed. So we're going to call the names, and after each name, our family group will say Ashe. In all, Janine reads more than 40 names. Ashe. Mothers. Fathers. George Green. Grandparents. And family. Children. Children were Sally, Edward, John, and Abraham. Ashe. In the end, Janine asks if anyone else has a name they want the group to recognize. I want to acknowledge my uh, 
great-great-grandfather, U.S. colored troops, Peter Miller. I say. The Bass Street neighborhood is gone now, but there is a new master plan underway for Fort Negley at the top of that hill. The hope is to showcase this important Nashville landmark and better honor the stories of the people who fought there and those who lived in its shadow. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm senior producer Steve Harouche. This hour is a special episode rounding up some of the pins we dropped in 2022 on storied but otherwise unassuming places like the base of that hill or a rural town that nearly disappeared. In Dixon County, there's a place called Promised Land. It's another community that was built by formerly enslaved African-Americans after the end of the Civil War. Early residents came from farms around Charlotte, Tennessee and from the nearby ironworks town, Cumberland Furnace. Similar to Bath Street, some of the first settlers like Ed Van Leer and John Nesbitt, served with the United States Colored Troops during the war. The town remained independent, and through the years of Jim Crow, it flourished. Every year, descendants of the town's original founders travel from around the country and the world for what is essentially a big family reunion. This is Nashville executive producer Andrea Tudhope was in Promised Land for last year's festival. It's a beautiful, sunny Saturday morning in Promised Land. There's a small crowd gathered under a tent. The annual hat parade is about to begin. Descendant Helen Edmondson-Hughes started this tradition years back. She is famous in this town for her hats. You never saw her without a hat. She wore a hat everywhere. That's her older sister, Bernice Edmondson-Hurd. Helen passed away last year, so today Bernice is wearing one of Helen's hats. It's lime green, wrapped in red hearts. The parade kicks off and Bernice leads the way. In line behind her are women in bright sun hats, pinks and yellows, some wrapped in scarves. Come on, y'all, clap your hands for them. Look at the parade of hats. Toka Nesbitt-Rainey is in the parade. She's a descendant of founder and U.S. Colored Troops veteran John Nesbitt. It's been 29 years since she last stepped foot here in Promised Land. Uh, You can see the reinvestment into the community where now former descendants are coming back home. And that's what this weekend means to me. It is just so... I'm just full. Today's Promised Land isn't quite what it used to be. But to this day, one of the town's churches and the original Promised Land School are still intact. Seeing the original piano and seeing the original soul machine and seeing the benches and the actual desk where they sat, you can feel the history. Hanging on each gust of this cool early summer breeze is a memory. The air seems to be bursting with them. Toka's right. You can feel it almost can hear the bell ringing. We out here playing and hear the teachers standing in the door. When the bell rang, we had to line up, and then we would line up according to our ages and our size. Nancy Nesbitt-Winfield was born and raised here. 
in its heyday, Promised Land was a self-sustained, thriving community. All within a thousand acres or so, there was a school, three churches, and a few general stores, selling everything from flour and sugar to coal oil and chicken feed. We had gardens, we raised our own food, we had fruit orchards and all of that. Our favorite nuts were hickory nuts, we had hickory nut trees over there. Of course, this was their land. They grew the food they ate, they raised their own livestock and tended to their own tobacco farms. I remember after school, we had to feed the animals. We had pigs, we had cows. We had a pig named Rocky, and she was our, she was our pet pig, just like a dog. Rocky was in the house with us. Uh-huh. At its peak, there were around 50 houses in Promised Land. The founders built a one-room schoolhouse where they taught first through eighth grade. By 1905, there were nearly 100 kids in attendance. The town was brimming with life. It was on these porches where this history was carried, told, and retold. Serena Gilbert walked that dirt road, porch to porch, collecting those stories. I can remember very vividly seeing streams of smoke coming up out of the chimneys and seeing laundry hanging on clotheslines, uh, blowing in the wind, and smelling the food that was cooking. I remember the people who, the older people who were at home and not working, would be on the porches. B. Edmondson was one. We called him Cousin Bubba. Okay, I need to jump in here to say Cousin Bubba may very well have been Serena's cousin. In Promised Land, everyone is a cousin. Probably are. Most people in Promised Land are cousins. That's so, that's so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, they really are. Hi, Sanchez. I'm your cousin, Kay. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Yeah. Good to meet you. And we were trying to figure out, we've been friends for over 50 years. And she said, we may be cousins. My mother was the aunt of your mother? I mean, your mother, I'm sorry, was the sister of your grandmother. So we're cousins. At least that's what we've always called each other. They all descended from those tight-knit families who first settled here in the late 1800s. Nancy of the Nesbitt family told me those roots are strong. And if you're from Promised Land, you know, that connection, you just always want to come back and it's just your family. It's like one big family. Okay, so back to Serena's cousin, Bubba. He would share things about his life when he was a child. And I enjoyed hearing those stories. And in fact, those stories still live with me now. By the 1950s, the town had dwindled. A lot of families migrated north, most to Ohio. Serena was 12 and one of the last students left when the Promised Land School had to close down for good in 1957. But that school was her foundation. There were five shelves in the library in the back corner of that one-room schoolhouse. She still remembers those books. There was a book called Near and Far Away Places. I enjoyed those books uh, because it took me away from Promised Land to far places. Her education and career did take her to some of those faraway places. But her mom, Essie Van Leer Gilbert, never left Promised Land. When Serena returned in 2004, Essie was one of maybe two original descendants left. It was a ghost town. And Essie was on a mission to bring it back. She uh, herself was a historian and a griot uh, who uh, loved to share the history. And so it was contagious uh, having her live under my roof and 
telling me and sharing the oral history with me, you know. I caught the bug. <laughs> Serena picked up her mom's torch and ushered in a new era for Promised Land. Promised Land is like in every fabric of my being. I feel like a daughter to the community. In the past few decades, the Heritage Association picked up steam, the road's been paved, and the schoolhouse restored. And now families are actually moving in. Houses are being built on land still owned by the descendants of those original settlers. It's a diverse town now, but it's still Black-owned land. And those roots may be stronger than ever. From the beginning, Promised Land, it grew out of hardship. People in Promised Land, you know, put their feet and their hands to the grind and didn't look back. That's why we work so hard now to preserve the school and to preserve the heritage because, you know, we want it to be, even when we're gone, we want Promised Land to still be there. We want our children, our children's children, to know about Promised Land. As Nashville and Middle Tennessee continue to change at a pace we can hardly wrap our heads around, we're going to keep dropping pins in places like Promised Land, like Bass Street. We're going to keep listening for stories like these, stories that have made this place what it is and what it's still becoming. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Rose Gilbert, Magnolia McKay, and yours truly. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Demir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville, find us on Instagram, and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm senior producer Steve Harouche. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. <laughs>